Welcome to the Readings Podcast, Celebration of Books. I'm Nico Galligan. In today's episode, a new instalment of the Readings Kids Podcast and a conversation with author Tegan Bennett Daylight, centred around her new YA novel, Royals. A group of teenagers alone in an empty shopping centre with everything they could possibly want and a baby? With no phones, no internet and no way out, Shannon and five other trapped teens are completely disconnected from the outside world and, crucially, their online lives. It's hard to say whether they'll be driven to delinquency or, even worse, forced to make friends IRL. In this book, Tegan Bennett Daylight, Stella Pry's shortlisted author of Six Bedrooms, appends Lord of the Flies to find out what really happens when there are no adults in the room. To interview, here's Reading's Kids Specialist and the new coordinator of the Readings Prize, Angela Crocombe. All right. I'm going to read out a little biog just to get started. Thank you for joining us, Tegan. Tegan Bennett-Daylight is a writer, teacher and critic and author of three adult novels, Bombora, What Falls Away and Safety. She's also written a collection of short stories called Six Bedrooms and a collection of essays called Details. Details was published in 2020 and shortlisted for the Prime Minister's Award for Nonfiction. And Tegan works as a lecturer in English and Creative Writing at Western Sydney Uni and lives on Dara Gundungurra land in the Blue Mountains with her husband and two children. And Royals is her first novel for young adults and was published in May this year and tells the story of six teenagers trapped in a parallel universe, which also happens to be a shopping mall, and what happens to them while they're stuck there. So thank you so much for joining us today. And I'd love to start with hearing about what you were like as a teenager and were you obsessed with reading? What were you reading? What were your favourite books? And and did you dream of becoming a writer? Ah, such great questions. Let me think. I was obsessed with reading. That would be the main thing. I read until I felt sick. (laughs) I could read entire days away. Quite regularly read a book in a day. I would go to bed early in order to read some more. And I had this amazing skill, which is that I could read in the car. Now, Mm. I know not everybody can do that, but I could do it. And I also wrote all the time. So my writing started with letters, and I still do whenever I can. I don't know if any of you guys would ever have read The Wombles. Okay, so the Wombles was a lovely, lovely, it's kind of the first recyclers, the Wombles. They were a group of animals who lived on Wimbledon Common and recycled everything. Anyway, I thought they were beautiful books. And so I wrote a letter to their author when I was six and I gave her some ideas for stories and she wrote back. And I still have the special Wombles notepaper that she wrote back to me on. I was very, and I'm sure you guys feel like this, I was very involved with books. They weren't just something that was kind of separate to me. They were something that I needed to be part of all the time. They were a conversation that I felt like I had to be part of. So I don't remember thinking I'll be a writer. I just remember writing. I just couldn't stop myself. So I was reading and I was also doing an odd thing where I was just practising sentences all the time. So I've got old diaries where I've written a sentence and then I've written it over and over again just to see if I could get it right. A sentence is a little bit like maybe like a kayak. You're constantly kind of moving just a little bit just to get the balance right. So when you're writing at your best, 
you can feel when a sentence is finally balanced. So I did a lot of that also. Yeah. So addicted, addicted. Addicted. And then what did you study at university? Did you study writing? Well, oddly, I didn't know what to study and I was going to do that thing that kids like me do, which is to do an arts degree at our main university, the University of Sydney. Mm. But I had a friend who discovered this funny little niche degree called communications at uh, the University of Technology. It still exists, but back then it was quite a sort of radical place to be. And he told me that I should do it because they had writing classes. So I, I didn't really learn that much in my writing classes, but what I did do was find a group of people who thought the same way that I did and who spoke about books the way that I did. I never really realised that there might be other people who valued reading the way I did. So mm. I got this fabulous opportunity to show off all the reading that I'd done. Suddenly who I was was worthwhile. <laughs> Having been a kind of a lesser citizen at school, suddenly I was an important citizen and that was a really, really beautiful thing. And another thing happened, which is that a tutor in my first writing class after the second or third class just pointed at me and said, you're a writer. And it was like, it was enormous. Still gives me a little prickle. Yeah. Found your people. I found my people and they're still my people. They're still my friends. And so from there, what, what was your journey to sort of the publication of your first novel? Yeah, well, interestingly, this sort of doesn't seem to have found its way into the publicity, so I'm going to try to make more of it now. One of the, the friends I met at university, her sister, much older sister, happened to be the editor of Dolly magazine, which I think is still around. I mean, I assume so. Magazines aren't really a thing anymore, but anyway. And they had an imprint called Dolly Fiction, which were teenage romances. And they were looking for writers. So I was about 18 or 19 and my friend said, oh, Dolly want people to write these teen romances. And I was like, oh, I'll do that. So I actually wrote five of those. I started when I was 19. They were all published and I was paid an amazing amount of money, still an amazing amount of money, $5,000 for each one of them. That I'm sorry to say hasn't that price hasn't really gone up <laughs> in in the time, but they're still out there. You can get them on Amazon and things like that. My pseudonym was Tegan Thomas. I wrote five of them. I had a really fantastic time, just to give you a sense of my age. With my first paycheck, I bought a computer. <laughs> <laughs> so all the other ones had been written by hand. So I used to write by hand and then I taught myself on my little Mac classic. So that was my first foray into publishing. Then I wrote a couple of kids' books, and that was when I was 20 or 21. And I didn't really know what I was doing. So, again, I got out the yellow pages, which also is no longer a thing, but I got out the yellow pages and I flipped to P for publisher. <laughs> and I saw all these publishers. I was right, okay. So I chose the five with the biggest ads and I printed up a copy of my first children's book and I sent it to all five of them. And a bit of a cautionary tale, I was picked out of what's called the slush pile. They still have a slush pile, which it's not a literal pile anymore. Basically, all publishers will receive submissions and if they haven't come via an agent, 
they go into the slush pile because the publishers are so busy they don't really know is this going to be something that we could publish we've got all this other stuff we have to look at so somebody very junior will end up going through the slush pile at some point and it was picked up by penguin books from the slush pile sounds great they really liked it and they said but we just want you to make a few changes so I made a few changes it took me quite a long time and I sent it back and then when I sent it back they said no we don't really want it and that broke my heart and about a week later I got a call from Random House so they also had picked the book up off the slush pile and they wanted to publish it and that went ahead so I had a couple of kids books published in my early 20s then I entered a thing that's still around that I would really encourage you guys to enter a thing called the Australian Vogel Literary Award which is for Australian writers under 35. I entered my first novel in that, my first novel for adults, and I was shortlisted for that. And then it was published by um, Alan and Unwin, which is the publisher that still runs the Australian Vogel Award. I've been judging that award for the last few years, and I can tell you that there are not enough entrants. I think the prize money is like $40,000, something like that, $50,000. And if you guys are readers and writers, you need to enter it. You need to know that it's there because some years we were we were really hunting for winners. It's like there's not enough entrance. So there you go. Yeah. Then the rest is a non-glamorous history of publishing. I'm critically acclaimed. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, now I've got three novels, collection of essays, the kids' books, the Dolly Fictions, a collection of short stories, and now oh, Royals. So why did you choose to start writing for young adults with Royals? Yeah, I didn't really choose to, but the story chose me. So I'd had this idea that I was carrying around for a long time about how cool it might be to be stuck in a shopping mall with no one else there and to have the run of the place. So some of you, especially those of you in Melbourne, know what lockdown can be like. And I just want to say for those of you in Melbourne, I'm so sorry because I know that was a living hell. I was in lockdown. I had my two kids who are now 22 and 18 and my foster daughter who's 19 living in the house with us. I knew that they missed them all. They just wanted to be at the Westfield. It was one of the things because I don't know about for you guys, but for my kids, the Westfield in Penrith, Penrith Plaza, it's the place you go to meet. It's the place you go to look at each other. It's the place you dress up. It's the place you get bubble tea. It's the place you find the food that you want, all of those sorts of things. So I had this idea. I got up in lockdown one morning and said to my husband, oh, I've got this idea for a, a book about a bunch of teenagers stuck in a Westfield, but I can't write it because it's YA. And he said, what are you saying? I thought I, thought I wasn't that kind of writer, but I just... I wrote it in five months. I've never written a book that quickly. I couldn't stop. It was just completely addictive. So that's the story of Royals. That's great. Yeah, it's a real utopia for them, isn't it? Like I love how they they think they're kings and queens. They can eat that's what exactly they want. Right. They can take what they want. It replenishes. Yeah. yeah, it's very deliberately, again, I'm going to guess at least some of you had to study or will have to study Lord of the Flies at school. I hate that book. I absolutely hate it and I don't believe it either. It's so grim to read but it's just so wrong. I, my experience of young people 
I've been an academic, a creative writing academic for 30 years. So I've seen wave after wave of 18-year-olds come through the university. And I've found as this wave of kids progresses, they become more inclusive, more open, more generous, more diverse. It's just, it's becoming a better and better world. So I wanted to write a book that reflected that, that showed that actually Generation Z, we're we're fucking lucky to have them, (laughs) is all I can say. I'm very glad that you're there. So yeah, it is a utopia. It's got a, it's got, you know, it's a bit scary at times and they don't know if they're going to be able to get out. And of course, at first they don't actually know each other. So they don't know if they'll be able to get on, if they'll make it work. In the very first couple of hours when they realize they're all stuck there, they find a baby as well. And they, they have to look after the baby and nobody knows what to do. Nobody's got a baby or has a baby sister or anything. A couple of them have baby cousins. But, yeah, it's just, it's a joyful book, I hope. So tell us about how you came up with the concept of getting them stuck in in the shopping mall. That was just a slow burn. When you start to write, one of the things I always recommend to my students and I'd recommend to you guys is that you just follow your nose. You don't plan too much beforehand. If you're finding out as you go, that will mean that the reader is enjoying the search as much as you are. So all I knew was that they would be there. All I knew was that my main character was going to begin by she's sitting in a corridor, she is looking at her phone, she feels a kind of jolt in the building, she looks up, her phone's frozen, she walks out of the corridor into the mall and there's nobody there. So I didn't know anything beyond that. I just sort of followed her. And as you can imagine, the first place she goes is the food court. So once she gets to the food court, she finds a bunch of other kids there. So I didn't plan anything like that. I just was like, okay, they're stuck in there. So I need to make it impossible for them to get out. How could that happen? What might the rules of the place be? I'm sure you've all heard of world building. That was really what I was doing, but I was doing it bit by bit. It's like, okay. And there was one morning in lockdown where I said to my husband, what if all the food goes off? And then how's that going to be? And one morning he said to me, you're really spending a lot of time thinking about cleaning. I think you need to put that to one side. (laughs) I was like, okay. (laughs) Then I realised, and this really made the book start to move, but I did not have this idea at the beginning. I realised that the plaza was on a kind of loop and that it was on a kind of what you might call a capitalist loop, meaning that every time you took something off the shelf, you bought it, even though these kids don't need to use money, every time you take something off the shelf, it's there again the next morning. So you're in this kind of renewing space. It's what my husband, who's an academic as well, would call the continuous present of capitalism. So that's that's the sort of idea. So everything that they they use, they find again in the morning. And that is mostly good, although very scary for them. But there are a couple of things that you have to be careful of. So there are pets, for instance, there's a pet shop in Penrith Plaza. And they're kind of like, shall we let the puppies out? Because that would be fun. And then they're like, well, what if there's more puppies tomorrow? So there's a whole thing to follow there. 
In your acknowledgements, you thanked your sensitivity readers and I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that process and and what they were looking for and, yeah. Thanks for that question. It's a great question. So there are six teenagers and a baby in the place. It's written in the first person, so it's from the point of view of Shannon, who is a mixture of me and my daughter. So we're white. My daughter is definitely gender fluid and queer. I felt very comfortable writing from that point of view, so I knew this main character well. There are two Indigenous characters, Tiana and Grace, who are cousins. There's a queer character, Akira, who's a white kid who's queer. There's a kid with a disability, Jordan. He's wheelchair-bound because he's had very early amputations of both legs. There's a Greek-Australian character, James, who's very sort of straight. Think that's all of them and then Juno you don't find out her ethnicity that's the baby you don't find out her ethnicity for a long time because she can't speak and because the kids are not observing her for that so in particular I needed to feel as though my Indigenous characters and my character with this disability were represented respectfully and and not just respectfully but accurately So I asked my editor, so this is the way it works, or certainly this is the way it works at my publisher. I asked my editor, would she be able to find sensitivity readers for me, an Indigenous sensitivity reader and a disabled one? I do have friends with disabilities and I do have Indigenous friends, but I didn't feel comfortable for two reasons asking them to do this for me, partly because it's an imposition on a friendship you're sort of asking somebody to legitimise what, what you are and what you're doing and that's not the right thing to do in a friendship. The other reason also was that I needed readers. I needed readers and writers, you know, people who understood what I was trying to do on the page with the words as well as culturally. So my great editor Lizzie found me an amazing Indigenous writer and reader called Alana Hunt. She also found me an amazing writer and reader with a disability who is also queer, Philippa Willits, and they both read for me. And I've actually changed my expression. I don't call it sensitivity reader anymore. I call them cultural readers. It feels actually more real to me. It wasn't about sensitive material. It was about culture being seen properly. So I found the experience a bit scary particularly when you've written Indigenous characters, it was very deliberate that I wouldn't write from their point of view. I would only write from a point of view that I felt I knew. I'm not saying that that's what everyone must do either. You find your own path in your writing. The first thing to do in your writing is to be yourself and then to figure out what that self is and how that self will be seen by others. But for me, I just knew where I had to write from. I was nervous. I'm ashamed of this now. I was a little bit nervous of being told that I couldn't do what I wanted to do, even though I knew that was a bit of a sort of shameful position to hold because as a white person I tend to often get to do what it is I want to do. I found both readings just incredibly uplifting and educational because they were a mix of really lovely words about the book. They both really enjoyed it. They felt energised by it. But also there were things, in some cases, they said I'd done a really good job and, of course, I was really happy and I was glad where I'd got it right. But I'll give you the the classic example was Jordan is the character with a disability. I don't have a disability, so I don't 
know from my own experience what it's like to be wheelchair bound. So I worked really hard on him and I actually watched this wonderful ABC show that's called You Can't Ask That. Mm. And it's very mind opening in every sense. We should all watch it. It's a fantastic mm. show. So I'd done a decent job with my Indigenous characters and with Jordan, but Philippa said to me that I hadn't thought hard enough about how problematic access is for someone with a disability. This is just one example. One of the things was the kids were talking about they have jobs, you know. One of them works at McDonald's and one of them does something else. Philippa didn't suggest this to me. She just made me notice that there were all these places Jordan couldn't go. And the one that really struck me was, oh, my God, Jordan could not have a job at McDonald's. He just couldn't. He can't get behind the counter. There's not enough room for him to move around. So Mm -hmm. he's kind of banned, sort of locked out of this space that all of us as young people want is a job. You know, he can't work in a shop. There's so many things he couldn't do. So I wanted to make my character, Shannon, suddenly become aware of that. So that was useful. With Alana's comments on Tiana and Grace, Grace is Tiana's younger cousin. She's 12. She's the only, apart from Juno, she's the only younger character. Tiana is nearly 18 and she's used to being in quite a caring role. She's always being a big sister in some way or another. And she's angry. And Alana said to me, you're really leaning too hard on the stereotype of an angry black woman. I was like, yeah, I am. And she said, it's okay for her to be angry, but you need to make this character richer and more complex. And I realised that one of the reasons that Tiana was angry was that she was doing all the caring. So they have to figure out who's going to look after the baby. And it really falls to Tiana because of her gender, because of her experience with kids. She's really got the shits because she's the one who ends up changing most of the nappies. And just to kind of think about that level of complexity in her character was a real gift. So it really, really was a really good experience. It only works if the writer is as open as the readers are. Mm. And the other thing is just every so often, I try not to look at Goodreads because it's a bad place. Once you get a book published, don't look at Goodreads. But I did look. and. There's a bit of stuff about a kind of forced diversity in my characters. There's also really great stuff about that. And I just wanted to say, have you looked around? (laughs) We're not all white. We don't all have the same abilities or the same backgrounds. We're not similar. We're actually really different. Australia is a really diverse place. We're neurologically diverse. And there's nobody in my book with an intellectual disability. There's nobody who's African-Australian. And I can tell you that Penrith Plaza is just so many beautiful African-Australian kids just wandering up and down. There's lack of representation as well as representation. But, yeah, thanks for asking that. It's a great question. Thank you for your very thoughtful and considered reply. It's really interesting. I love the way the friendships really developed between the characters and the the complexity that evolved over time about them and and how they really came to care for one another so much. And particularly in the little interview section where they learnt more about one another, I thought that was really sweet. Yeah. Oh, thanks. It was really fun to write. And that one, I had no idea I was going to do that. The book's in four parts and in the third section, it's just called the interview series, They're getting a bit bored, so they set themselves up with a camera. They dress up. 
one of them decides to be the interviewer and they interview each other about their lives because this might be a useful sort of writing tip. I didn't want to write a fake scene where somehow two of them are thrown together and then they tell each other all their hopes and dreams and all their hard stuff and all that kind of thing. I actually needed to make it in a weird sort of a way more staged in order to make it more natural. I don't like TV shows and books that lie to me about what people are really like and how they really talk. So I had to find a kind of authentic way. Thank you so much for talking to us and being so generous with your answers. It's really been pleasure. very it's wonderful. Pleasure. Anytime, if you want me back, I'm, I'm there. It's, <laughs> this is my joy, you know. <laughs> Follow me on Instagram, whatever that, <laughs> however that works. <laughs> And watch me as I try to post things and then I hit the enter key and I post it before I'm ready to. It's my new gift. <laughs> I hope that Royals has a wonderful publication month and gets out there into the world and you get to do lots of great publicity and make lots of sales. Very excited to hear there might be a follow-up book in the future. Yeah, yeah that's great. Thanks again, guys. Royals is available from all reading stores, as well as at our website, where you'll find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners and pay earnest respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Thank you.